Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. This is your moment, your time to shine, your comeback. You're ready for the next step in your career, and you want an education employer's respect. So you're not just going back to school. You're coming back with Purdue Global. Backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected public universities, Purdue Global is built for people who bring their life experience into the online classroom. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Hey guys, ready or not, 2024 is here and we here at Breaking Points are already thinking of ways we can up our game for this critical election. We rely on our premium subs to expand coverage, upgrade the studio, add staff, give you guys the best independent coverage that is possible. If you like what we're all about, it just means the absolute world to have your support. But enough with that, let's get to the show. Good morning, everybody. It is Monday. We have a great show for everyone today. What do we have, Crystal? Indeed, we do. Lots of breaking updates, of course, coming out of Israel that we will get to, including a uh, not very successful trip of our Secretary of State, Tony Blinken. Over there, we also have former President Obama weighing in in the most possible Obama yes. way. So we'll react to that. Our own Griffin and Mac producers were on the ground at the massive protest here in D.C. So we have some footage from that. Um, they were able to interview some of the people who were attending that march to get their thoughts on what was going on and what message they want to convey. Bombshell poll by The New York Times uh, showing Trump beating Biden in five out of six swing states. Some of the numbers under the surface, too, among young people, among African-Americans. Uh, I know the Biden White House is not happy about these ones, so we'll break all of that down for you as well. Also, a stunning revelation that the U.S. is starting to talk quietly to Ukraine about how we can wrap this war up, how we can get the parties to the negotiating table, as uh, it is increasingly clear that they are in a stalemate and unable to push through. It's also a story that really caught Sagar's attention about a budgeting software yes. that is being shut down. Um, what stage of capitalism is this, Sagar? I, it is, this is the latest <laughs> of the late stage. I'm, I'm genuinely furious about it, and we will talk about it. Yeah, yeah, it's also just a huge political week. I mean, obviously, we've been really focused for 
for understandable reasons on what is going on in Israel and Gaza. But we also have huge elections tomorrow yeah. um, in Virginia, in Kentucky, uh, ballot measures in places like Ohio and Maine that are you know really important and may give some indication of where we are politically. So we'll dig into that, specifically focusing on Virginia today. We'll give you a broader breakdown tomorrow. There's also a Republican debate this week, mm-hmm. which is like, you know, completely yeah. under the radar. <laughs> so we've got a lot going on uh, this week to get into. Thank you so much to all of you who've been helping us out. Um, This has been a very difficult time in terms of gathering news, in terms of being on alert all the time. Our producers and our crew are working overtime. So thank you guys so much for supporting all of that. Overtime indeed. Uh, They took their weekend to go to a protest, compile and edit everything. We just want to say thank you again, breakingpoints.com, if you're able to help us out. Yes, indeed. All right, let's get to the very latest um, in terms of Israel. These are a couple of things that are just breaking very recently. We now have the U.S. announcing that an uh, Ohio-class nuclear submarine has uh, moved into the Middle East. This is a rare announcement. Uh, They say that a guided missile submarine has arrived, a message of deterrence clearly directed at regional adversaries as the Biden administration tries to avoid a broader conflict amid the Israel-Hamas war. This is per CNN. U.S. CENTCOM said on social media that an Ohio-class submarine was entering its area of responsibility. Um, Sagar, I want to get your quick react on this because it's both the fact that it's there, but also we don't normally like announce to everyone where no. these things happen to be going. No, the Ohio-class submarine is one of the most uh, so secret, quote-unquote, submarines. I used to cover the Pentagon. They would never tell you where an Ohio-class submarine is, ever, unless they want you to know. So whenever they did want you to know, it would usually be whenever they would be operating off the coast of Crimea, or they would be like, we're making a show against Russia in a pre-announced military uh, drill or some sort of exercise with the joint power, something like that. For uh, This is extraordinary. And I remember seeing it and just being like, oh my gosh, I can barely believe this is real. Just so people understand, uh, and as you could saw in the tweet, it's the U.S. Central Command, CENTRALCOM, or CENTCOM, um, as it is otherwise known, is the area which Im- is included Israel and the entire Middle East. So that's why they said on November 5, 2023, an Ohio-class submarine arrived in the U.S. CENTCOM area of responsibility. So, I mean, that's the biggest, like, eye emoji that there is in military circles, because mm. they don't do this, ever. I mean, mm. uh, I, multiple other Pentagon correspondents who I saw and others were like, I honestly can barely even remember the last time. Um, and of course, there's only one reason um, to send, to telegraph this. Hamas does not care about Ohio-class submarines. Hezbollah right. does not care, uh, care about Ohio-class submarines. Ohio-class submarines are, you know, some of the most... I mean, these these things carry like Trident missiles. They're some of the most advanced military technology on all, on Earth, and we don't even have that many of them. So it is a very very clear signal mm. um, to Iran about what we have in the region. On top of, don't forget all those carrier strike group assets where the combined firepower of that is more than most nations on all of planet Earth. And we have many more carrier strike groups um, in our arsenal. To that point, each one of these things can carry 154 Tomahawk cruise missiles, Mm -hmm. 50% more than U.S. guided missile destroyers pack and almost four times what the U.S. Navy's newest attack subs are armed with. Each Tomahawk missile, so 154 of these, each one can carry up to a 1,000-pound high-explosive war, warhead. Um, you have a you know an expert on this sort of thing saying they can deliver a lot of firepower very rapidly. I think that's a bit of an understatement. And goes on to say 154 tomahawks accurately deliver a lot of punch. No opponent of the U.S. can ignore the threat. So in case you thought that you know perhaps we'd gotten through the possibility of a second front opening up, and we had Nasrallah from Hezbollah giving a speech and just sort of you know, beating his chest but not announcing a new opening of a war. This should make it really clear to everyone 
that this is a very present danger, the continued escalation of this conflict. And it also comes as Israel is announcing um, a large-scale attack that they are car carrying out basically as we speak. Yes. Um, they once again cut all the comms coming out of Gaza, no internet, no phone, et cetera. So once again, very difficult for any journalist or any human being there on the ground to get out reports of what is going on. But they are announcing a large attack. Reading from the New York Times here, they say their forces had fully encircled Gaza City and were carrying out a significant operation in the Gaza Strip late Sunday as the entire enclave was plunged into the same kind of widespread communications blackout cut it off from the world during Israel's initial ground invasion 10 days ago. Quote, this is from uh, an IDF spokesperson. At this hour, we are carrying out a large attack on terrorist infrastructure, both both below and above ground. So no signs of uh, certainly stopping, no signs of easing up. They are continuing, if anything, they are escalating even further in terms of the severity of the attacks that are happening on the ground. And this comes, Sagar, we discussed over the weekend, and just to give everybody a little bit of an update, what a humiliating trip uh, our Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, had to Israel, where he pressed them for a humanitarian pause um, at the time that he was pressing them for this humanitarian pause, they were apparently, although they say they were striking terrorists, but um, you know the, they have offered no, uh, no evidence of this, they were striking a convoy of ambulances at the very time that Tony Blinken is saying, hey, about, how about a humanitarian pause? They rejected him out of hand, but that was not even the end of his humiliation and our humiliation as the United States of America in the Middle East. He went on to do a press conference with his counterparts with uh, Egypt and Jordan and continues. I mean, this humanitarian pause thing is basically like what literally no one wants and is something that they made up to try to give liberals some sort of cover so that they can pretend like they care about the toll that is being taken on civilian life here. Well, the Jordanian and the Egyptian foreign minister also rejected that completely out of hand and said, listen, what we really need here is a ceasefire. Let's take a listen to a little bit of that. But I would say what we all as a human beings, as you said, as I said, as we all say, as human be be beings, we just cannot accept to see all that killing unfolding, to see all that reduction of life to, to a complete loss. How is how, how can we justify to anybody that killing 9,000 people, killing 3,700 children, uh, destroying 150,000 house, killing, destroying hospitals. How can we justify the, that this is self-defense? So this is right after Tony Blinken was saying, hey, no, no to a ceasefire, and they rejected that out of hand and you know, publicly sort of rebuked him with their own analysis. That's not supposed to happen. You know, They are never supposed to have a, all three of the secretaries of state of three of the powers. You know, you've got the United States of America, the superpower, you've got the regional powers, you've got Jordan, you've got Egypt there. These are some of our closest quote unquote partners all throughout the Iraq war, throughout you know all of our relations with Israel and with Egypt. We had Sisi directly lecture Blinken to his face. Now we have the Jordanian foreign minister who is openly parting and rebuking, honestly, the Secretary of State. Now we've had multiple diplomatic cutoffs of Turkey and of Israel, of the Egyptians, of Amman, which has withdrawn their ambassador from Israel, which has kicked out the Israeli ambassador. I mean, the regional di diplomatic situation is deteriorating at a very, very fast pace. So you have the arrival of this missile sub. And yeah, I mean, one of the things that we should highlight, as you said, it's like everyone's like, oh, we can take a sigh of relief after the Nasrallah speech. I'm like, well, you know, you don't, it's not been that long. And I hate to say it, 
But, you know, think back to the First World War. It took a month before the guns of August start rolling. Um, it's We're near that month thing. Even then, you know, you look at other things. You had a conflict, a low-grade conflict that goes on and on and on, and then some one thing happens that explodes onto the world stage. So just because, you know, in the recency bias, we can think that things haven't gotten uh, worse, all of the things, the chess pieces are in place for a catastrophic situation to unfold. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, to go in a little more on this whole humanitarian pause thing, which basically everybody is seeing through, put this up on the screen. It's a report from Axios about what Tony Blinken was saying to the Israelis to try to persuade them to do this humanitarian pause thing. And it wasn't, hey, we're really concerned about the civilians. We really need to get food and water in. We really need to be able to evacuate people for medical care, given that so many of the hospitals are no longer functioning. It was, quote, we don't want to stop you, but help us help you get more time. And people who have been, you know, pushing for a ceasefire and I would put the Egyptian and the Jordanian foreign ministers in this camp, I would put myself in this camp, have been saying, you know, the whole idea of a humanitarian pause isn't really about the civilians. It's about providing cover for liberals so they can keep their, you know, virtue about them and pretend like they really care about what's happening to the children and the women and the civilians on the ground and the utter devastation, the complete siege, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also, as Blinken lays out here, to actually give Israel more time. Because as long as the overwhelming, indiscriminate bombing of hospitals and schools and refugee camps, et cetera, continues, you're going to have increasing pressure here and around the world to get them to stop. So it's not that Blinken and Biden want Israel to stop bombing, it's that they want to give them a little PR cover to extend this thing, which is exactly why Egypt and Jordan were so you know willing and so direct to basically shoot this idea down. And the Israelis, on the other hand, they see through it because they're like, you've already told us there's no red lines. Yeah. You've already told us that our aid isn't gonna be conditional. You've already told us you're gonna stand with us no matter what. So piss off, why should we listen to you? The only way I think I would be like on board with a quote unquote humanitarian pause is if the Israelis were to take actual look at their military strategy and be like, all right, like what are we actually accomplishing here? Because what we've accomplished so far is, I mean, basically you can go back and roll the tape where really what we said was gonna happen from day one, you're gonna kill a ton of civilians in terms of your actual military degradation of Hamas. There's not a lot of evidence yet so far, especially because the Israeli military is not, I mean, whenever, the, for example, when the U.S. military would conduct operations against ISIS, every single operation, and I would, I was in there, I was in the briefing room, Operation Inherent Resolve. They're like, here's what we accomplished today. We took out, you know, 54 different ISIS uh, strongholds. We bombed their oil fields. We took out, you know, X miles of what they had built. And this area of Mosul was retaken. Now, the Israelis have not been doing this actually at all. The and it really is shocking to now think of the Pentagon as being transparent, which I did not think at the time, but here we are. Uh, the Israelis have not released the number of miles that have been destroyed by yeah. Hamas. They haven't actually confirmed all that many Hamas targets. Many of their operations are conducted in complete secret, um, even in terms of the briefings that they're providing to foreign military or their own military. They're not telling us exactly what they're doing. Everyone's like, oh, well, you know, in war, that's, that's not what you do. Well, in modern warfare, again, I'm just telling you, I, as a person who covered the United States military, that's how they operated. They were very clear after every single operation. We're like, here's what we're doing. It was within this context. Here, we we're trying to retake this. The grand strategy is to destroy ISIS. This is how it contributes to the overall goal. And we would have, you know, a lieutenant colonel or whatever, um, who was a spokesperson who would come uh, on over the air in a Zoom call from 
Iraq to brief us all in the American press. None of that currently exists right now. So even on their transparency, they're not really giving us insight into their operations. And I think that is where I really think people need to have a hell of a lot of skepticism because, and I did, you know, as well. How many times did, even in their so-called transparency, did the Pentagon tell us, like, we are 100% certain we killed this member of ISIS? And we're like, okay, where's the proof? And they're like, well, here's the proof, and here's how we got there, and all of that. And what did we find out in Afghanistan? Oh, turns out he's a water salesman. He killed, like, five of his kids. And that happens all the time. And that was with great intelligence, with great, you know, supposedly on-the-ground presence, ISR, et cetera. So the Israelis, I mean, they have to be and should be in the modern military, which is how you conduct operations war, they should be conducting themselves or trying to achieve that same standard, but they're basically rejecting it. They're like, no, we're not going to fight that way at all. So anyway, if there was a humanitarian pause that could restore any semblance of like how a modern military fights, what's the actual military objective here? Um, they say it's to destroy Hamas. On the other hand, many of their actions read as collective punishment. Nobody's really saying anything out loud. So it's like, well, what are we doing here? And what <laughs> are we saying actually- a lot of things out loud. Right, but, <laughs> but what are we moving towards? Like, what right. is the end state of this? Do we well, just bomb until we stop bombing? Because now what? Now we're in a worse situation arguably. Absolutely. And less safe for everyone. Less safe. Like, you know, for the long-term prospects of Israeli security, there is no doubt they are making their own people less safe with what they are doing right now. And um, Sagar, you know, to your point, I think we should just stop pretending that the goal here is actually to dismantle Hamas because the military approach is wildly inconsistent with that supposed goal. And this is something that, to her uh, credit, and very courageously, I think, Ilhan Omar has been pointing out. She said recently, U.S. policy is essentially that Netanyahu has no achievable goals in Gaza and a ground invasion risks regional war, including potential U.S. troops. And also, we should give him $14 billion in weapons with no restrictions and say there are no red lines as he bombs refugee camps. See how this doesn't add up. I think if we're being honest about what the actual military objectives are, it is retribution and collective punishment. I mean, that's just, you know, an analysis of what they're doing and what they've been doing from the jump when the very first thing they announced was a complete siege of every single civilian cutting off water and food and fuel to the entire population and the way the bombing campaign has been conducted. So it's retribution. And it's also after their own humiliation and failures on October 7th to try to reestablish that they're the baddest MFers on the block. That's the other goal. And I would add a third goal to that which is Netanyahu trying to hold on for dear life to his political position as prime minister when an overwhelming majority of Israelis want him gone either now, a near majority want him gone right now, or some close to 80% want him gone now or when the war is over. So he is trying to buy time and trying to satisfy the desire for revenge that exists among the public so that he can hope to survive another political day. And listen, the man is a survivor, a political survivor. Mm-hmm. Let me tell you that. Um, let's go ahead and put this next piece up on the screen about um, you know what could come after this, you know, what's going on in the ground in Gaza. So Blinken is telling uh, the head of the PA, Mahmoud Abbas, that uh, the Palestinian Authority could play a central role in Gaza. Now, it's hard to see how that would really work, to be honest with you, because the PA doesn't really have legitimacy in the West Bank, where they are rightly seen as basically like weak collaborators who have done very little to protect um, Palestinians who live in the West Bank from escalating uh, settler and IDF violence there. Um, But 
in terms of what uh, Abbas is saying, he says the PA would only assume power in Gaza, which Hamas has controlled since 2007, as part of a, quote, comprehensive political solution to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, according to a Palestinian news agency. So uh, this is what the U.S. is floating as the PA to play some sort of a central role. But again, uh, it's hard to see how that is any sort of a real solution. And also, by the way, Remember, we reported on the fact that this uh, official government ministry put on a report of like, okay, here are some of the options. They rated this as the least desirable, not because of the PA's weakness, which by the way is something that uh, the Israeli government has tried to ensure that the PA is very weak, but because they do not want unity between Gaza and the West Bank, because that could potentially further the aspirations of Palestinian statehood. And so they want to keep these two territories divided. They want to make sure that they have this talking point of like, ah, we got no one to negotiate with. So sure, we love peace, but what can we do? Yeah, I mean, I'm getting serious uh, Ahmed Chalabi Tal vibes off of Mahmoud Abbas. <laughs> um, for people who don't know, you can Google it. I'm not going to go into all the history right now. It was basically about who the U.S. tried to install as the tried to prop next up. Pre president of Iraq, and it didn't work out so well. I guess that's the short uh, answer for it all. The point is just that he is increasingly viewed as a very feckless figure. And of course, he himself is actually quite old, uh, hasn't, has been in power now for decades, and somebody who is viewed as unable to stand up for Palestinians against the Israelis. Hamas already has a very, very high approval rating. So again, like let's, let's assume that you get to a scenario where you do destroy Hamas inside of Gaza. It's going to be a very difficult operation. It's going to take many months, if not years, in order to accomplish that. Now you have a foreign occupying force, and you're going to try and install a government. It's like if you're the government who's being installed by the military occupying force, Ask America how that works out um, every time that we have tried to do that. That's why these things are very, very difficult. So look, I don't know. At the same time, we just want to flag this. As usual, Americans are smarter than most people who are in charge. Let's put this up there on the screen. Over 80% of Americans right now are concerned that the U.S. could be pulled into the Israel and Hamas war. 84% were either very or somewhat concerned the U.S. could be drawn into the conflict. The response is actually varying by political party. Republicans showing a higher concern than Democrats. 52% of Republicans said they were very concerned compared to 30% of Democrats, probably because of trust in Biden. Mm -hmm. But the quote is just, American voters who are watching the cauldron in the Middle East reaching a furious boiling point are fearful of the war so far confined to Israel and Gaza will metastasize to include U.S. troops. And considering what we started with about an Ohio-class submarine, about these carrier strike groups, about these Marine Expeditionary Forces, about our guys who are taking um, hits in Iraq and Syria. You know, I was just looking at the photo Crystal, Pre uh, Secretary Blinken landed in Baghdad to go and to meet with the Iraqi prime minister. Even now, you know, as uh, my friend Dan Caldwell so eloquently puts it, after 4,400 lives, 30,000 wounded, 2 trillion in Iraq, America's chief diplomat still has to show up 20 years later in Baghdad at night in secret wearing body armor to go in to meet the Iraqi president. Wow. That's where we're at right now. So just to show you again our track record of doing this so well, 20 years later, you know, we've got a government in Iraq, which, you know, we don't go into this all that often, but it is a, a nightmare what we have done to that country, how they have ended up. They're basically an Iranian proxy state. And now our chief diplomat landing in the dead of night in a secret trip, wearing the fake body armor over a suit like Jared Kushner, like a J. Crew model Jeez. and all that. And having to take, again, having to take a helicopter to the, uh, uh, to having to take a helicopter to go in to meet with the Iraqi prime minister. It's like, Things haven't changed since George W. Bush landed on the ground there some 20 years ago for his first presidential visit when we were in the middle of an active war. That tells you really everything 
that you need to know about our own track record here. Yeah, and the last thing I'll say before uh, we move on to what increasingly is clear what the Israelis actually want to do in Gaza um, after this offensive is complete, whenever that is the case, you know, the, the White House realizes that this is, you know, this is a mounting political disaster for them. And you've already got two-thirds of the public that wants a ceasefire. You've already got 80% of Democrats that want a ceasefire. We're going to cover some poll numbers that are, woof, terrible and um, are only getting worse because you have young people, Arab Americans and Muslim Americans who are disgusted with the Biden administration's approach. And the longer that this goes on, the more the horror of October 7th fades and the images that endure are of these Palestinian babies and women and refugee camps and hospitals and ambulances just being bombed with our complete support, with our bombs. Um, so they're trying to create some sort of narrative of like, oh, we really tried. We really tried to rein them in. And, you know, it was we did our best, et cetera, et cetera. So they there's this sort of bizarre article in The Washington Post where administration officials are leaking to them just, you know, how how they can't get anything done and they're really working behind the scenes. But, you know, they just the Israelis just won't listen to them and we just really don't have any leverage. And it's once again this complete feigned impotence because obviously, I mean, the amount of money that we give all of these countries, but Israel chiefly, but, you know, since it's off the table to condition that, to touch that, to even say a word about, you know, even discriminate about what kind of weapons we're going to send. They put that completely off the table and then they're like, oh, there's nothing we can do. It's like, yeah, because you took all of your leverage off the table from the jump and advertised to them from the jump. We're not going to draw any red lines. We're not going to condition support. We're with you no matter what you want to do, even as, you know, you've got ministers as we're about to report on talking about Israeli ministers talking about, hey, maybe we should nuke Gaza and plans for ethnic cleansing being intentionally leaked to the public, et cetera, et cetera. So, yeah, we've got no leverage in the situation because you decided you would take all of the leverage off the table. And it just annoys me, Sagar, to no end, this, like, feigned impotence, which is the only thing, like, dem this is the thing that dem they do in domestic politics. Oh, yes, parliamentarian, the Republicans. It's just so hard. We just can't do what we, you know, I know we would love to do these great things for you. But we just can't do it. And it's the same freaking thing here. It was the same thing with Ukraine, too, which we're about to get to, and they're changing their tune there as well. Yeah, exactly. I, I was going to say, it just reminds me of Ukraine. It's like when you set us a, a thing where you're like, no, this partner, this person is our ally no matter what. We're blood brothers. The whole, My whole thing, and I've always thought this, you should only bestow that status on maybe one or two countries. To me, it's like the UK and Australia. That's basically it. Everybody else, in my in my opinion, can eat it. Um, and it's like we got to be very, very transactional. The issue for all of these, like Israel, Ukraine, you know, it's everything. We refuse to condition our aid. We just say you can do whatever you want. And then where it's like a given that we're just going to get dragged in next to you. Now, listen, you can be an ally. That's a that's a thing. That's fine. Then, but that means that there is a transactional relationship. I can guarantee you in Israel, they have no qualms calling out the United States whenever they feel like they're not getting taken care of. Absolutely. They have absolute. They spy on us. They steal secrets. You know, the open, dirty little secret in Washington is that the biggest penetrator of the U.S. government from spies is Mossad. And then go look at people like uh, Netanyahu, who went to go visit an Israeli spy in prison and beg 
for his release and then welcomed him with open arms after he openly turned traitor to the U.S. government. It's like they're happily willing to look at this as transactional. For some reason, we're so stupid that we're not. And it's, this is not way bigger than an Israel problem. This is a Ukraine problem. This is a Saudi problem. Mm. There's so many different countries um, <clears throat> that come on. Even an Egyptian problem or Jordanian problem. It's like we can't get these people to do anything that we want because they think we're fools. It's just, uh, you know, the humiliation just goes on and on. Uh, but this is a bipartisan story, unfortunately. Yeah. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Like many of us, you might think identity theft will never happen to you. But consider this. There's a new identity theft victim every three seconds in the U.S. That's over 15 million people by the end of this year, equal to the populations of New York, Los Angeles, and Chicago combined. Even worse, identity theft victims often don't even know they're victims. That's why LifeLock Identity Theft Protection alerts you to identity threats even the ones that don't show up on a credit report, like data breaches, fraudulent bank transactions, loan and credit card applications, and crimes committed in your name. If your identity is stolen, your own dedicated LifeLock U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. LifeLock protects you in ways that you simply can't on your own. Join now and save up to 25% your first year at lifelock.com slash news. That's lifelock.com slash news to save up to 25%. Identity theft protection starts here. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. So let's get to what increasingly is clear, what Israel actually wants to do with regards to Gaza and the Palestinians who live in Gaza. Put this up on the screen. They have been quietly pushing for Egypt to admit large numbers of Gazans. Um, let me go ahead and read a little bit from this uh, report. They say they've been trying to build international support in recent weeks for the transfer of several hundred thousand civilians from Gaza to Egypt for the duration of its war in the territory. Israeli leaders and diplomats have privately proposed the idea to several foreign governments, framing it as a humanitarian initiative that would allow civilians to temporarily escape the perils of Gaza for refugee camps in the Sinai Desert just across the border neighboring Egypt. The suggestion was dismissed by most of Israel's interlocutors, who include the U.S. and Britain, because of the risk that such a mass displacement could become permanent. Some Israeli hardliners advocate keeping control of Gaza and permanently expelling its Palestinian residents. A Likud lawmaker has called for another Nakba that would, quote, overshadow the original mass displacement in 1948. Um, here's the quote from that Likud lawmaker. Right now, one goal, colon, Nakba. 
Nakba in Gaza and Nakba to anyone who dares to join. Um, another far-right government minister said on Wednesday that Gazan land should be given to former Israeli soldiers who fought in Gaza or to former Israeli settlers who lived in the enclave before Israel withdrew in 2005. Video has also emerged of an Israeli military officer calling for Israel to reoccupy Gaza, as well as a separate video that shows a pop singer calling for that reoccupation, prompting the approval of an audience of soldiers. So they have been pushing, working behind the scenes, to try to convince Egypt, hey, just take a few hundred thousand of these Gaza residents just for the duration of the war, pinky promise, we're totally gonna take them back. Meanwhile, their own government and affiliated think tanks are laying out proposals for the permanent removal of Palestinians from Gaza, which would be an ethnic cleansing, like very clear textbook by the definition. Um, and so it's very hard for anyone to believe that this evacuation would truly, truly be temporary. Certainly the Palestinians don't believe it. The Egyptians don't believe it. The Jordanians don't believe it. Even we don't, even our dumbasses don't believe it. So um, in terms of the United States government and Tony Blinken. So this is, um, you know, becoming pretty clear that this is what they're pushing for behind the scenes. And Sagar, you know, in that report that mm -hmm. came out, which uh, there was some suggestion that it was sort of intentionally leaked as like a trial balloon, they even talked about how they would overcome this type of initial opposition. And it's like basically you create facts on the ground where you have such a humanitarian catastrophe, which is already unfolding. Um, you know, you have now residents of Gaza who are living on two pieces of, um, of bread coming basically from the UN a day. Water is extremely scarce, no fuel. I mean, you guys know the, the horror that is unfolding there. So you create such a humanitarian catastrophe that it creates all this pressure on Egypt in particular to take people in. You already see them taking in some to a field hospital, very small numbers at this point. And you make it so that there really is no feasible alternative. Like, what is the feasible alternative? Um, so I think that's the direction that they continue to push on, both in terms of their private negotiations and in terms of these public trial balloons. And, you know, in terms of very clear statements from these aren't fringe people who are saying openly, hey, let's call for the Nakba. These are members of the governing party. Yeah, this is where I think that the U.S. power actually could be the most exerted, where they're going to Israel and they're like, this is a red line. They're like, if there's any discussion of this in the official government, you're nuking it. It's not happening. That's where conditional aid is. Same thing for Egypt. They're like, we're going to set up a safe zone. Not a single person has to be worrying about ethnic cleansing. Everybody's going to be able to return. We can have some sort of military operation. We can negotiate the battle space, the military objective, and all of that. And that is how we keep a cap on a major regional war. Instead, we're not doing any of that. And I would uh, point, actually, to that shocking comment that came from Egypt five days ago, which is starting to make a hell of a lot more sense when he said, quote, quote, we are ready to sacrifice millions of lives to ensure that no one encroaches upon our territory. That was the prime minister of Egypt. And yeah. it was said with, look, Sisi didn't say it, but he definitely was ordered to say it or it was conditioned and it was greenlit by the Egyptian government. And at the time, there were some eyebrows. Then started, you know, we started seeing inklings about Israeli plans and all that. But now it seems that this was, you know, actually asked and pushed for behind the scenes to the Egyptians and explains initially also why Sisi so rejected Anthony Blinken in that initial October right. 8 and October 9 visit when
when Blinken was like, hey, maybe we open up the Sinai, and Sisi was like, absolutely not. Hell no, I'm not doing it. At the time, even, I'm, people can probably go, look, I was like, I don't know why they're not doing this. Now it all starts to make a lot more sense. And it's because also, again, we can allay these fears. We could tell the Israelis, we're like, this is not gonna happen. A period, end of story, never. We will never live with this. This is a red line for US policy. If it's even openly discussed, then aid and all that is not going to happen. But you know, in this environment, which is basically a vacuum of the Israelis get to do basically what they want, and then the Egyptians even, I don't even know if we have proper relations at this point. You know, can the President Biden can even get CC on the phone? Maybe they're not gonna believe a word that we say. So the trust deficit is actually making things way more unstable in the region. And that's again, the prospect for regional war increases on behalf of that. I also just have yeah. to comment on, I guess what you would call a historical irony of the um, Jewish Israeli government trying to push a stateless people to wander in the Sinai Egyptian desert indefinitely. Um, like I said, I think you might call that a historic irony. Uh, to, to speak to some more of the just, you know, utterly extreme genocidal, like open, like advo advocation for, advocation, that's not a word. Anyway, uh, advocacy for yes. ethnic cleansing coming out of the Israeli government, our great allies, who we have drawn zero red lines for, made it really clear we're not drawing any red lines. Um, go ahead and put this up on the screen. This was from Bezalel Smotrich, who is the Israeli finance minister. So he's a cabinet minister. He said on Israeli TV, quote, I don't see a big difference between Hamas and the Palestinian Authority, Palestinian Authority, of course, in charge of the West Bank. The Arabs are the same Arabs. Okay, so this puts into context what has been going on in the West Bank that uh, we broke down for you last week and CounterPoints off also covered extensively. Um, massive escalation in violence in the West Bank, Jewish settlers, um, aided in a majority of the cases directly by the IDF, pushing Palestinians off of their land, um, killing over 100 just in the time period um, post-October 7th. So while this war has been, while this war has been raged, uh, being waged on Gaza, um, you have over 100 Palestinians in the West Bank being murdered there as well. So he's laying out the groundwork here for hey, Hamas is not just Gaza. Mm -hmm. We see the West Bank. We see the people who run the, the West Bank as being basically the same as Hamas. The, quote, Arabs are the same Arabs. So it gives you insight into the thinking of some of the coalition partners and one particular cabinet minister in the Netanyahu government. And Sagar, this is what we mean when we say this is the most extreme government that Israel has ever had in their history. And just to add one more that I referred to before, go ahead and put this up on the screen. Uh, another far-right minister saying that, quote, nuking Gaza is an option. Population should, quote, go to Ireland or the deserts. This was in an interview, a local interview, where uh, this minister was, so he's the heritage minister, was mm -hmm. suggesting that some kind of nuclear bomb could be dropped on uh, Gaza. He was asked the question, you know, whether this would be a good idea. And he said, quote, that's one way. He also voiced his objection during the interview to allow any humanitarian aid into Gaza, saying, quote, we wouldn't hand the Nazis humanitarian aid and charging that there is no such thing as uninvolved civilians in Gaza. This is exactly the type of dehumanizing rhetoric that throughout history has been used to justify genocide. Because if there are no uninvolved citizens, there are no innocent civilians, then hey, no problem to just wipe them all off the map. He goes even further. 
He backs retaking the Strip's territory and restoring the settlements there. Asked about the fate of the Palestinian population, he says, quote, they can go to Ireland or deserts. The monsters in Gaza should find a solution by themselves. He says the Northern Strip has no right to exist, adding that anyone waving a Palestinian or Hamas flag should not continue living on the face of the earth. Hmm. This is a government minister who is saying these things and who, again, we have said no red lines, no matter what, do what you want to do. Yeah, I, it's it, again, I just can't come, I can't help but come back to uh, the way that we are apparently just not even, we're not talking to Netanyahu about this or they're not listening or uh, a little bit of both. And Every respect, I mean, none of this is helpful in any way. It's also funny, I think we were talking about this, uh, Crystal, one of the reasons he got in trouble, this minister is for admitting that Israel has nuclear weapons, right? <laughs> right? Uh, which they're not supposed to admit, even though they obviously do. Uh, you should also go look. I was talking a little bit about spying and stealing technology from the U.S. You should go look into the history of how they acquired those U.S. weapons or those nuclear weapons. Very, very interesting um, for behavior for an ally. But that's something that we could put aside. The point, I think, just for all of this is that the open calls within Israel are bolstering the worst claims of Hamas and of Palestinians, giving them the power uh, to, you know, enforce their ideology and their governance by being like, we're protecting you against these. It's also inflaming the tensions of our allied Arab and or Turkish um, countries in the region which are saying openly, look at what they are saying, we cannot abide by this. So with all that trust deficit, the US, by basically being caught in the middle here, is making it so that we have very little authority to exert over the conflict, which just means more uncertainty and more chaos and more prospect of war. Yeah, indeed. Hey everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A dot com. We've got um, former President Obama weighing in on this. In words that nobody asked for, President uh, Barack Obama, <laughs> former president, decided to weigh in in the most Obama fashion ever on Israel-Palestine. Let's take a listen. If there's any chance of us being able to act constructively to do something, it will require an admission of complexity. 
and maintaining what on the surface may seem contradictory ideas? That, that what Hamas did was horrific and there's no justification for it? And what is also true is that the, the occupation and what's happening to Palestinians is, is unbearable. And what is also true is that there is a history of the Jewish people that may be dismissed unless your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your uncle or your aunt tell you stories about the madness of anti-Semitism. And what is true is that there are people right now who are dying who have nothing to do with what Hamas did. And what is true, right? I mean, we can go on for a while. And the problem with the social media and trying to TikTok activism and trying to debate this on that is you can't speak the truth. You can pretend to speak the truth. You can speak one side of the truth. And in some cases, you can try to maintain your moral innocence, but that won't solve the problem. And so if you want to solve the problem, then you have to take in the whole truth. And you then have to admit nobody's hands are clean, that all of us are complicit to some degree. I look at this and I think back, what could I have done during my presidency to move this forward as hard as I tried? I've got the scars to prove it. But there's a part of me that's still saying, well, was there something else I could have done? That's the conversation we should be having. Not just looking backwards, but looking forward. And, and that can't happen if we are confining ourselves to our outrage. I would rather see you out there talking to people, including people who you disagree with. If you genuinely want to change this, then you've got to figure out how to speak to somebody on the other side. Oh, man. All right. Okay. Lots to say. If anybody wants to know why I viscerally hate Barack Obama, that's actually probably the best clip because you could look at it one way, and this is how most liberals do. They're like, what an eloquent man. He's able to summarize the both sides and bring it so holistically. Nuanced. It's so nuanced. A, it's not nuanced, but B, he literally was the president. He had the power. He actually at one point had the ability to change these circumstances. And he hemmed and he hawed and he did exactly what you talked about previously. He's like, well, you know, it's like, we just, my hands were tied and all of this. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different things, mm -hmm. you know, from the Middle East and so many other policies that he pursued that actually did help us uh, get to where we are right now. It's funny, you could look at it from a right angle and a left angle actually to give uh, both the pathways to creating this situation. But most importantly, that is such a helpless and a feckless way to look at it 
because it takes power away from basically every person who is involved in the situation. And so that is why I, I truly despise Barack Obama because in my opinion, he was smart enough to know better and he was a good enough politician to actually try and to change some of these systemic problems that he talked very eloquently about mm-hmm. 2006 mm-hmm. to 2008. And by 09, basically just washed his hands, gave up, and now he's an Instagram president. Him and his wife are Netflix brands. They're not even human beings now yeah. at this point. This is a perfect example. This is calibrated to keep his Netflix deal and his dumbass National Park series, not to actually do anything. That's what is that's the guiding North Star of his life at this point. Yeah, Mr. Uh content creator, personal brand dude, has a lot of gall to be castigating the TikTok activists Mm -hmm. for uh, not presenting a wholesome picture to his liking. And that was the part, I mean, I have a million things to say about this, but that was the part that to me was the most enraging and also the most classic Obama Rather than, you know, digging in on what you could have done when you were president, which he gives a nod, oh, I think about maybe what could I have done different. But really the problem is all of you people out there on TikTok, and maybe you need to just get out there and talk to someone who disagrees with you. Or maybe, Barack Obama, you could get on the phone to your buddy, Joe Biden, and actually exert some influence on someone who has some real power to change the situation rather than just lecturing young people about being on TikTok. I mean, that's the part that's so irritating to me is he says, he has this quote, you have to admit that all of us are complicit Mm. to some degree. It's like you more than us. Maybe, (laughs) but only one of us was president of the United States for eight years, okay? So, and only one of us is besties with the current president of the United States, by the way. So perhaps some of us are more complicit than others of us. That's one. That's the part that like most enrages me. The other thing is, it's just so classic Obama too. It's the same like red state, blue state mm-hmm. formulation, you know, where he has to go out of his way to, it's classic nuance trolling too. Like this is like the definition of nuance trolling, which listen, no one is gonna deny. The history is complex. There are a million podcasts that I recommend you listen to or books mm-hmm. you can read to really understand the ins and outs of the deals that were crafted and rejected and who rejected them and why and how we got to this, you know, strange situation to begin with and, you know, the all the un- events that unfolded. There's no doubt that that is all very complex, but also the current situation is actually not that complex. The immediate situation is there is mass civilian death huge indiscriminate bombing and the risk of a of a huge regional if not world war on the table those pieces are actually not complex i don't need you to nuance troll over that i don't need you to wring your hands about how difficult and how complex it is etc because actually some of the both geostrategic pieces here and the moral pieces are very very clear um so that's why i find all of that so irritating and so enraging And this man never pops up to do anything useful whatsoever. Mm. The only thing he really cares about is like burnishing his own legacy and trying to preserve his own legacy. But in terms of actually like pushing policy or pushing the very powerful people that he has tons of sway with in any sort of positive direction, he's got nothing to say about that. Everything he said is technically true. It's like, yeah, it is technically true that you can't have a full picture on TikTok. It is technically true that everyone at some point, or every US policymaker, I would say, is- I would argue I've seen some TikToks that were more illuminating than what he just said right there. Sure, I I mean, he's (laughs) like, you can't tell the whole picture. You can't uh, get both, I agree. 
mean, I agree that much of uh, modern online discourse is cancerous, but I also am always reminded that uh, that discourse is equally cancerous. And it's a helplessness, it's a powerlessness, it's the ability to try and assuage the feelings of liberals without actually doing anything. Mm -hmm. That was uh, the, if you want to really know what he invented more than anything, it was that. It was the celebrity president, the man who does nothing. Um, And you often hear that. You're like, he was the most eloquent president we ever had. And it's always like, is that eloquence? Because real eloquence, real power was the ability to combine rhetoric and the actual like force behind it to the force of action from right. words and to translate into something. He never actually mastered the second part, but we are also, uh, you know, we're also anxious to be led by such a great man that we're willing to just like forget what real leadership is supposed to look like. Anyway, I can go on forever as people can see. Uh, <laughs> this is something that sticks deep for me um, with uh, Barack Obama and it's good to see absolutely nothing has changed on his front. Mm. Let's go to the next part here. There were some major protests um, here in Washington um, calling for a ceasefire. Our team was actually there on the ground. We have some uh, images that we can show you before we actually throw to some of the interviews that our team was able to These ones were conduct. not, by the way, from our team. Yeah, These were ones us. pulled this from the a, internet. A but we just wanted to give you a sense of the size and scale of right. it. Right, yeah, you can see just how there. big it is. The time-lapse uh, footage, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people um, were in Washington. You could see the Palestinian flag. You could see people that were um, standing. We, we are told it was a very, very uh, diverse crowd um, by our team, and they were able to convo- conduct a lot of interviews. So why don't we take a listen and see what they found out for us. All right, it's Mac here with Breaking Points just at the National March uh, here in Washington, D.C. for Palestine. It's, it's absolutely massive. We're here to lend a voice to the Palestinians in Gaza to tell them that we hear you. We're here to express your thoughts to the leadership in the White House and in Congress to stop the genocide and stop the killing and uh, come up to a peaceful resolution. I came out here because my family in Gaza can't. I came out here to raise awareness of what's going on in Palestine, what's been happening in Palestine, and to raise our voices and let people know that we do not want our money going to this war, to this genocide, this apartheid. As a Jewish person, raised with Jewish values, proudly Jewish, I refuse to have my identity hijacked by Zionism. Zionism is a genocidal, secular nationalist movement uh, that has nothing to do with the Jewish values that I grew up with. Ethnic cleansing and genocide are not Jewish values. Our pain as Jewish people, our trauma, even the trauma from October 7th, is being hijacked to justify long-term plans to completely ethnically cleanse Gaza, so we have to stand against it. We see the U.S. is funding funding a genocide, so this is our opportunity to show that this is enough. Enough is enough. We're have enough. I've had enough. I'm just some regular old American guy. I mean, I have no connections to Israel or to Palestine, to anything, but I see that this is just about humanity. There's been a lot of uh, talk in the press that these are hate marches, so I wanted to see for myself if there was a lot of hate out here. I have not seen any hate yet. If I see any hate, I will report back. My first cousin's son with his family were bombed in their own house and they were killed. Now tell me, how am I going to look my cousin in the eye and give her my condolences when she knows and I know that her son and his family were killed with my tax dollar, with my money. 
And how can I sleep at night? Would you be able to sleep at night if this happened to you? Now, that's the problem here. That's what I face every single day. We are human beings and these are babies, brother. And, and, and forget, how about the ones that are not dying, right? That now gotta suffer and they're traumatized for the rest of their life. They're watching their parents decapitated, their limbs are gone, their homes are gone. They have nowhere to go. It's literally an outdoor prison, right? And at least in a regular prison, eventually you might get out. Over there, there's no getting out. I don't know how many more they're gonna kill before they just wipe out the whole, um, the whole group. So it's, to me, it's ethnic cleansing. And I'm here and I'm against that, and I don't want my tax dollars going to support that. What do you think of Joe Biden's handling of this so far? I think this is a lot, he has a lot to do with this because his strong, he has such a strong attachment to Israel that his, he has no way to back out now. He, he is now fully involved with this genocide. He, thousands of civilians, the blood is on his hands now. There's a whole generation that are gonna be raised with nothing but hate in their hearts because what Israel has done to their, their families and their friends and their communities. I mean, we're creating thousands of, of people that are gonna hate us, Israel. We need to stop and have a ceasefire right now. What do you think of Joe Biden's handling of all of this so far? Well, you know, I support him because I don't want Trump, but I'm very, um, bothered that he isn't calling for a ceasefire. Are you going to withhold your vote from Joe Biden? Yes, um, I am. I'm not sure how I'm voting for, but it will be Joe Biden. Gotcha. Yes. I'm very, very disappointed. I voted for him in the last election because I felt he was the lesser of two evils, and he's just proven that he is the most evil. 100% going to vote for somebody else. I'm looking for an independent party that supports the liberation of Palestine. Oh, he, Joe, who's Joe Biden? He's not handling anything at the end of the day. He's just a puppet. That's what we feel like. He's talking about, I don't believe in the numbers uh, of, of how many Palestinians died. And just, it's all just to distract everybody from what's happening, man. The U.S. cannot give aid to, uh, to countries that commit war crimes. <laughs> how could I vote for Biden now? I mean, Trump is a fascist, but how could I vote for Biden? I, my, my partner has family in Gaza. You tell me, who should, how could I vote for him? Do the job well. He cannot, he cannot finish the job. He cannot do anything. He cannot accomplish anything. All our taxes, he just burn it. He just killing people with children, innocent children. This, uh, this is a G-rated channel, right? Up to you. <laughs> so I think he's being um, insensitive to the views of the other people, to the Palestinian people. His one-sided view, save Israel, and uh, without serious uh, consideration, on the uh, happenings in Gaza. What do you think of other Americans who may be a little bit hesitant to support the Palestinian cause or they think it's a really complex issue? What would you say to them? I get it because we want to be careful with our words and we want to be careful of who we support, but this is not, this is the fact. The facts are that we have thousands of civilians dead. They're being murdered. They're, this is a genocide. This, I get that we want to be careful but this is, we've gotten to a point where you can't be careful anymore. He's fire now. It's all stop the genocide. It's all the same message. We're all in this together. Just listen to your fellow human, I think. If you're Jewish in the U.S., if you're a taxpayer in the U.S., it's especially important to speak out because your voice matters more to the people that are perpetrating ethnic cleansing in your name. We love Jews. We're standing with the Jews. Fuck it's the, the Zionists. Zionists.
It's the Zionists that we're against, okay? And Gaza, we love you. We're here for you. You're in our prayers. Wallahi, if we can do more, we will be there for you. There are Palestinians that need freedom. My family, I love you so much, and we're here for you. Media, media, you can't hide. We charge you with genocide. Oh, that was pretty uh, shocking, actually, just to see so many people. They did a good job um, elucidating no different yeah. response. They got some uh, Jewish Americans. They had some Palestinian Americans. They had some Arab Americans asking there. The most interesting question there, of course, are you going to withhold your Joe vote from Joe Biden? Not uh, a, a lot of positive responses there for the president. The one lady the most honest, she's like, I voted for him because he wasn't Trump, but now I'm not sure. Yeah. So, uh, look, we should also all be honest. Let's let's be real. Let's look at the polling most Americans support Israel. Younger Americans, they don't support Israel, or they're mostly like a wash on the issue. They have 30% some approval for the Palestinian cause, but it's like 17% for Israel. Everything else is don't know. But the vast majority, people who are older especially, who are gonna vote, they're Israel supporters. However, this is a powerful contingent in American politics. If you're thinking of things as razor thin, and something that is a major theme, I think, of our coverage recently, Crystal, has been the threat that RFK Jr., Cornell West, and other third-party candidates could face to Joe Biden. So on that front, I don't think that there's any question that this is going to be a potent political force in that it can swing when the margins are only 1% to 2% um, that we're talking about. And this, I mean, look, I'm not going to say this is 20%. Maybe five. Five is enough. Five can swing. These are yeah. the largest anti-war protests that we've had since the Iraq War, yeah. for, for sure. I don't even think it's close. And, um, you know, I tried to look at estimates, very hard to get estimates of, like, exactly how many people were right. at this particular march. The largest, th so the people who organized it said it was 300,000. Other reports said at least tens of thousands. Um, the New York Post had a source who said around 100,000. You can see big. from the video, yeah. it was yeah. a lot of freaking people, right. okay? Um, Mac and Griffin did a fantastic job getting a cross-section of the folks that were there. You have young people, you have, you know, that one lady just yeah. seems like kind of like a typical right. liberal, you know, who's out there and just like disgusted with what she sees mm -hmm. unfolding in the news. You have people with direct connections to the region. Uh, the one woman who says she has family members who she knows who lost loved ones in Gaza. So you really get a sense of, you know, the breadth of the coalition that is really standing in favor of a ceasefire. And um, I think to your point, Sagar, about the polling, you know, it really depends on how you ask the question because you have two thirds of Americans already who say, we want a ceasefire. Yes. And that's what this march is calling for. So in that way, even though obviously the people who are gonna show up at a protest, like this is an activist engaged group of people, but they actually reflect the overwhelming majority of Americans with regards to their demand for a ceasefire. Mm. If you're talking about Democrats, it's actually 80% of Democrats who support the demand that is being made at this march of a ceasefire, 80% of Democrats. And this is why this is, you know, obviously, you know, the, the moral issues for me are paramount, but it's a huge political issue for Joe Biden because he needs young people to show up and vote for him and believe that he is the lesser of the two evils and bother to go to the polls on election day. And if you look at all of the polls that come out, there is such a massive generational divide. And we've also seen in terms of um, Arab American opinion, I mean, the way that his support in the Arab American world community has fallen off a cliff is really, I, I can't think of a similar 
polling demographic plummet that we have ever witnessed. And this is something that we talked to Jim Zogby about Mm -hmm. last week in terms of his views and his perspective on the issue. So, you know, it's quite extraordinary to see this many people in our nation's capital and reflective of also marches that we're seeing all over the world with the very same demand, which is uh, a ceasefire now. The last thing that I really noted, Sagar, which I thought was interesting, is you had a number of people bring up the fact that part of what compelled them to be there was that they felt that since this was our taxpayer dollars that were being used to support these actions by Israel, it gave them a special sense of responsibility to lift their voices. And I think that is an incredibly important dynamic of this because sometimes what you'll hear is like, oh, why do you care so much right. about this issue? And you know, why aren't you spending more of your time talking about like, okay, Hamas released the hostages, which they 100% should do. Well, part of it is because our taxpayer dollars aren't going to support Hamas. They are going overwhelmingly to support Israel and including this you know, additional $14 billion that they're trying to secure for more weapons um, to our great ally Israel. So that is part of why the American people feel, I think, a special responsibility to lift their voices in protests when they see our taxpayer dollars going to support something that we, you know, a majority of public opinion says we wildly stand against. And that's before you even get into the risk of escalation and the risk of the broader war. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a totally fair point. That's, you know, that's any American citizen, especially uh, if who's talking about this from a taxpayer perspective, I think that's totally legitimate and it's fair. And that's something I, I get very annoyed. People are like, oh, everybody is anti semitic who stands were there some nasty signs yeah i mean there's nasty signs like every protest you ever been to a protest before uh that doesn't mean that they're necessarily representative that applies to a trump support too just by the way uh, and that's exactly my issue is we're seeing like an erosion of free speech norms we're seeing oh, an erosion of uh the discourse the discourse has never been more poisonous uh than i've ever seen in my life just around these uh, around these things maybe the iraq war i guess wasn't old enough um to participate but all the pieces are in place you know to try and crack down on some sort of but uh, that is a potent reminder that this is certainly not going anywhere. And sure, you know, the Iraq protest didn't stop the war, but it was a preview of what was to come and of the price to be paid in 05, 06, and for the years to come of people who were skeptical of the government from there on out. So I would uh, I would pay attention if I were the people who were in charge. Yeah, indeed. And lastly, we saw um, our own uh, co-host, Ryan Grimm, there. Oh, yeah, that's right. At the protest. We forgot to shout out Ryan. As well, checking things out. Yeah. Um, and not so sure about that hat, though, Ryan. I think that hat's got to go. We're going to have to talk yeah. about about that hat. I'm right. calling, I will censor that hat. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, he he made a point uh, online and also on his Substack that I thought was a good one, which is we're kind of in the phase now of people starting to think about how is it going to look for me in the future that I supported all of this? Hmm. And you even saw Richie Torres, who I don't know if you guys have been following. He's a Democratic congressman who has been going all in at war with Rashida Tlaib, like fighting on behalf of Israel's right to do whatever they want, whenever they want, et cetera. And even he, Sagar, put on a statement after the uh, far-right Israeli minister was like, hey, how about we nuke Gaza? It was like, okay, this is way too far. Mm -hmm. This guy needs to be fired. This is completely over the line. And I think that's consistent with what Ryan is talking about is as these images continue to come out, as we continue to see the extent of the devastation, I mean, you can go look at the maps that are coming out of how much of Gaza has already been destroyed, of the suffering that all of the civilians there are um, undergoing as we speak, that people are starting to think about like, how in five years is this going to look for me that I was behind this this whole time? And you certainly see that in terms of the White House 
trying to, you know, trying to put out there like, oh, we're really trying. We're really trying. We really care about the civilians, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So um, in any case, it's um, it was pretty extraordinary to see that many people coming out to the nation's capital to call for a ceasefire. And, you know, even in like how we feel about the state of our quote unquote democracy, even in the most repressive countries, they have to worry about public opinion. Of course. Like yeah. you can only stifle dissent so much. And I think this is only going to grow from here. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On the network that covers more roads than any other carrier, connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right rug flooring. All right, this is a good a good place actually to turn to politics on any other day, week, whatever. Yeah. This would be by far the biggest story that we started the show with, but some really quite eye-opening polls coming out from the New York Times, the liberal paper of record. Put this up on the screen. They did polling of swing states, and in five of those six swing states, Trump is winning. Leave this up on the screen so I can just go through all of the numbers here so people get a sense of what we were dealing with. In Nevada, Trump 52, Biden 41. In Michigan, Trump 48, Biden 43. In Georgia, Trump is up by six, 49 to 43. In Pennsylvania, Trump is up by four, 48, 44. In Arizona, Trump is up by five, 49, 44. And in Wisconsin, this is the one state where Biden's hanging on by his fingertips. He's winning 47-45. Um, I probably do not need to remind you that last time around, Biden won every single one of these states. That Nevada number should be really shocking to people because I don't think Nevada even ended up being all that close. It's one of the states Democrats have continued to perform well in, um, even as some of the demographics there have tended to shift to the right. Let's go ahead. Uh, I'll give you some of the details and then get your reaction. Then we can show some of the uh, additional polling graphics mm -hmm. we have here. Part of what is driving this shift to Trump, voters under 30 some of those people that we saw at the march there, now favor Mr. Biden by a single percentage point, one point. Voters under 30, key part of the Democratic coalition, favor, favor Biden now by a single point. His lead among Hispanic voters is down to single digits. 
His advantage in urban areas is half that of Trump's edge in rural regions. So he's still winning in urban areas, but it's not nearly like what Trump is doing in rural areas. Women still favor Biden, but men prefer Trump by twice as large a margin, reversing the gender advantage that has fueled so many Democratic gains in recent years. Um, let me throw one more at you. Black voters, long a bulwark for Democrats and from Mr. Biden, the New York Times says, are now registering 22% support for Trump in these states, a level unseen in presidential politics for a Republican in modern times. And I'll give you a quote from one of the respondents that they interviewed here, a guy named Spencer Weiss, 53-year-old electrical substation specialist in Pennsylvania, says, the world is falling apart under Biden. He backed Biden in 2020, but he is now backing Trump, albeit with some reservations. Quote, I would much rather see somebody that I feel can be a positive role model leader for the country, but at least I think Trump has his wits about him, Sagar. Yeah, I think, look, and this is where even everyone always tries to make it about a certain thing. I actually think the single biggest problem for Biden is he's too old. Go and put this up there on the screen, please. C2. Share who think each candidate is too old. From 34% mm. in 2020 to 71%. Listen, we tried to tell you 70, last time around. We tried to tell you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I remember actually getting a lot of hate mail about that. We were like, oh, you're making fun of a man with a stutter. Oh, yeah? It's just a magical stutter that reappeared whenever he turned 78 years old. 34 years old, 34% to 71% of the American people. Only 18% have thought about it, about Trump, 39%. Now, by the way, 39 is still high. But, I mean, Trump is leading that by double-digit margins. Now, does not have the mental sharpness to be president. Look at that Biden figure. 2020 was 45%. 2023, 62%. That's almost a supermajority. Trump's mental sharpness has actually gone down in terms of people who think that he doesn't have it. And does not have the temperament to be president. This is probably the worst one for Biden because this is why a huge number of people voted for him. Yep. 39% in 2020 said Biden did not have the temperament. Now it's 51. Trump had a 58 in terms of people who say he didn't have the temperament, and now it's 55. To be narrowly tied with Trump on the area where you most were able to succeed him in terms of I have the statesmanship, I have the temperament, I'm not Trump, which again, the vast majority of people who voted for Biden, whether they admit it or not, did it because his name wasn't Trump, not because of anything that he was actually saying or wanting to do. This is the biggest, the core problem. Put the next one, please, up there on the screen. Cohen goes into this. How Trump has fared now in the Times and Siena polling four years ago, four years ago, it was Re Democrats plus two for Joe Biden. Today, it's Republicans plus five. A named alternative, this is actually pretty interesting in, in and of itself, like Elizabeth Warren in 2019 or Kamala, uh, still has Republican advantage, although Kamala actually appears to be faring slightly better than Joe Biden, which takes skill. Um, that it shows you Trump. how bad it's gotten. Now, for an unnamed generic Democrat, they say Democrats plus three and Democrats plus eight. So generic Democrat and generic Republican actually both faring incredibly well in these. But Dean of course, Phillips loving that number. Yeah, but it's, it's like it's not going to happen. <laughs> it's going to be Biden and it's mostly going to be Trump, um, you know, barring some black swan events, of course, yeah. which, you know, could, of course, happen. And we don't know what those look like. But on the path that we are today, we've got 365 days or so until Election Day. This is a blaring red signal. I saw Nate Silver say that, too. He's like, look, the American people have been telling you for three straight years. He's too old. He's too old. He's too old. Hey, by the way, he's way too old. He's old. Old. Did you hear me? He's old. 
And Democrats are like, no, we're not going to do a primary. We're not going to do any of that. We're going to start, uh, Biden's going to have to start going up the short stairs on Air Force One. We're just going to cover it up as best as we can. People aren't stupid. Everybody knows somebody who is that old and has watched them decline. And it's just like, I don't know, man. You know, you're going to put him in charge of the nuclear submarines. You're going to put him in charge of the nuclear arsenal. It gives people a lot of pause. And then on top of that, can anyone deny that the vibes of the Biden presidency have been awful? It's like you combine all these things. You've got Jimmy Carter levels of disapproval, and that's exactly what shows us. He's got the lowest presidential approval rating at this time in his presidency since every president since Jimmy Carter. Even George H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton, you know, all these people who did not fare all that well in the year or so before, they were doing better than Biden is right now. And you know what? If yeah. people felt like they, their life was going great right. and they felt hopeful about the future and then maybe they'd be like, hey, grandpa, yeah, like maybe. he's lost his dad, right. but I can live with it, right? Mm -hmm. It's fine. Things are going pretty good. But people don't feel that way. They don't feel that way at all. And so, you know, one of the reasons why Democrats were able to do as well as they did in the midterms one of the reasons why they've done so well in so many special elections is because of the overturning of Roe versus Wade and the focus on social issues and the, um, I would say, real extremism, some may say perceived extremism, of the Republican Party. But within this poll, nearly twice as many voters say that economic issues will determine their 2024 vote compared with social issues. And those economic voters favor Trump by a landslide 60% to 32%. Now, I have been pointing out for a long time here that at the beginning of the Biden presidency, when he was doing a lot of stuff that was like manifestly helping a lot of people, including sending out checks and child tax credit and student loan um, forbearance, all of these sorts of things that made people feel like, all right, I'm getting by, I'm doing okay, even as inflation started to spike, his approval rating was very high. Lo and behold, the story of his presidency has been pulling all of those things back so that not only are Americans, even before we talk about inflation, in a worse economic position than they were previously and seeing all of these things that were helpful to them previously go away under a Democratic administration, but then you also have, of course, the specter of inflation, which has made it so that people are taking a pay cut month to month to month, and it's no surprise that folks are feeling like, hey, the economy hasn't been too great under you, buddy. This hasn't gone too well. I don't appreciate the decisions that you've made in this regard. So you have that. You have, of course, the perception um, and the reality that he is struggling just to complete his sentences and, you know, a sense of sort of listlessness and a sense that he doesn't really have control of the, the world around him. And then you've got, you know, the Ukraine war and now you've got what's going on in Israel and Gaza. So I don't think anyone should be surprised that you see these kind of numbers coming out in swing states. It's been, the writing has kind of yeah. been on the wall for a while. We talked last week about how much support RFK Jr. is actually garnering mm. at this point in the uh, general election. In this poll from Quinnipiac, he's getting 22% when it's a three-way race. And that actually lifts Biden over Trump to 39-36 and then Kennedy at 22 I would say this is maybe the one thing that could save Joe at this point. And I do think it is a little bit negligent that the New York Times didn't um, include Kennedy. I would personally, and they have the money to do this, I would want to do a head-to-head -head that's Biden and Trump, and I would want to do the Biden, Trump, and Kennedy. Um, it would be good to have Cornell West in there as well, though I think there are a lot more questions about yeah. how whether he will have ballot access and whether that'll be a real choice going into the election, but it would be good to have him there as well as a reference point. Because when you're talking about a candidate who could potentially garner 20% of the vote, 
that in and of itself could completely change the dynamic. So I think that's maybe the one thing that the Biden team has got to be looking at with a little bit of hopefulness at yeah, this point. Yeah, and this is where, look, I just gave the case against, I personally, I think Biden probably will lose. If you were to ask me today, one year ahead, you can bro, you know, make fun of me. You know, A lot of stuff can happen in a year. I think at this moment, I think he's probably going to lose. But yeah. let me give the case for why I think he could win. Uh, what I would say is RFK Jr. could absolutely save him, especially in the margins. All he's got to do if he's getting 22% of the vote is shave off. I mean, all those margins in the swing states are 8, 9, 10%, you know, at best. Yeah. That's not that much that he has to take. Let's say that he draws on average more from Trump than he does from Biden. Boom, you're golden. So even though you're only getting 30 something percent of the vote in Michigan or something like that, you're still winning. So that a win is a win. That's how a guy like Bill Clinton, who only got 42% of the popular vote, became president with 300 some electoral votes in nine, in 1992 because of Ross Perot. So that there's, you know, not unprecedented to see that type of situation. The other case is let's let's be real. The New York Times Siena poll had all the Republicans in a red wave in 2022, and it was totally wrong. Yeah, I mean, they were yeah. off by almost five points. Democrats have overperformed in every single special election. Virginia is going to be a massive test yeah. for abortion on the ballot. If Democrats overperform here again, then that's a blinking sign that, you know, just like Trump was able to get all of these like non-college educated whites like crawl out of the woodwork who have never been polled because they never voted before. Abortion has been a very similar, you know, effect on the electorate. So I would, you know, look, I, I, like I said, I think Biden will lose. I think it's like 55, 45, but I think that's a lot closer than some of the Trump people are trying to yeah. paint it as, you know, 45% is, you know, that's a better chance uh, than Hillary had. Uh, or sorry, that Trump had in terms of winning the election. He had only a 30% chance. Of well, here's the thing that Democrats will say. Yeah. Here's their their cope at this point, which right. I think, you know, there's there's some real, uh, some real justification here for their cope. Um, they'll say that right now all the focus is on Biden and his failures and what's going on with him and these wars and the bad economy, et cetera. Right. As we get into a general election, more focus will be on Trump. And Trump, yes, he's been indicted, but he's going to have trials. He could be facing convictions, and that could change the dynamics here. That's one. The other thing is they feel like, you know, some of these voters who said they'd vote for Kamala Harris, but they wouldn't vote for Joe Biden, they feel like those people are ultimately going to be persuaded mm -hmm. to come home. They'll be convinced again that, oh, my God, we can't do four more years of Trump, and they'll suck it up and vote for Joe. That's what they think is, you know, is going to ultimately happen. And like I said, especially with the specter of Trump facing um, criminal prosecution, potential potentially being found guilty and being sentenced, et cetera. That's what they're hoping for is that there's enough time between now and then that the dynamics could significantly shift, that some of these young voters who, you know, are saying either they're going to stay home. It's not that they're really going to Trump, but they think they'll be brought into the fold eventually. So that's kind of what they're hanging their hat on. Um, RFK Jr., I would say, is the real wild card here. And again, I just want to say, I, I don't know that RFK is going to be able to pull off 20% of the vote when it actually comes down to it, because typically support for third-party candidates right, ends up down. collapsing as you get close to election day. But if I don't see how you can really justify just completely leaving him out of the analysis at I this agree. point. I just, I just really think that that you know, changes the landscape significantly. And I've long said, right now, I think he takes more for tr from Trump. 
I don't know if that will persist, especially as you do have so many young voters who are disgusted with Joe Biden over what's happening in Israel and our unconditional support for Israel. So I think those dynamics could shift. And, you know, I really think one of the most undercovered political stories at this point is what's going on with him and the coalition that he is attempting to bring together. So that's something we want to keep our eye on. Yeah, totally and completely agree with you, Crystal. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi. On a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right rug flooring. Developments in the side of Ukraine, uh, it is shocking just to see how quickly sentiment in Washington is to, uh, has turned and how quickly also when the blank check gets withheld for even a couple of weeks, all the knives in Ukraine and all the things that we knew that were true all began to come out. And mm. now President Zelensky has taken to meet the press here in Washington, D.C. to castigate Trump, um, to go after his own top general for admitting that their military is in a stalemate, and to basically act like some sort of resistance Twitter poster mm. whenever he's talking about Putin. Here's what he had to say on our national television. Let's take a listen. I hear you rejecting the characterization by your top general that this is a stalemate. Are you changing strategies? I believe that today, indeed, the situation is difficult. I don't think that this is a stalemate. It's a, it's a check on the, on, the, on the part of the Russian army, but before that, we did a lot. We had done a lot. We were in a difficult situation. They thought that they would checkmate us, but this didn't happen. And on the other, on the contrary, we took the initiative in our hands. Now, Russia wants to do to, to check us. They are attacking us in the east of our country while losing thousands of people and hundreds of units, pieces of weaponry. Because. The war takes the best of us, the best heroes, the best men, women, children. That's it. But we are not ready to give our freedom to this terrorist Putin. That's it. That's why we are fighting. That's it. 
So that interview uh, where he's like, eh, Putin is an effing terrorist, you know, as again, as the, people compared him to Winston Churchill, <laughs> it turns out that he's just like every Twitter user and see, appears to be hanging out too often with uh, Bill Crystal in terms of his discourse. But clearly he's on the back foot here and he's desperate in these interviews. Let's put this up there on the screen. It turns out we know why. It's because U.S. and European officials have broached the topic of peace negotiations with Ukraine, quote unquote sources tell NBC News. And those conversations have included broad outlines of what Ukraine might need to give up to reach a deal with Russia. So here we are, hundreds of billions of dollars later, who knows how many hundreds of thousands of Ukrainian dead or wounded. And finally, with Russia holding 20% of all of Ukraine, something that we told was totally intolerable, would never be uh, accepted by the United States, with Ukraine, without Ukraine, all of that, we are now saying, quote, some military officials have privately begun using the term stalemate to describe the current battle in Ukraine, with some saying it has now come down to which side can maintain a military force the longest. Wait, you mean it wasn't like that from the very beginning? Except it was, and all of us have been completely hoodwinked. The issue right here, Crystal, is that now we're all allowed to admit the truth, that the Ukrainians are, quote, stealing like there's no tomorrow, that the military is in a stalemate, that behind the scenes there is no military assessment for them ever to be able to accomplish these goals without drawing the United States into some sort of massive war, that actually there are trade-offs between Israel and Ukraine and Taiwan and anything that the United States wants to be able to accomplish militarily, and that pushing Ukraine to negotiate, that doesn't make you a Russian sympathizer. That just makes you a realist, somebody who can look at this, somebody who wants to minimize humanitarian casualties, civilian or civilian death, military death, and to restore some sort of peace and order and minimize the amount of chaos in the globe that might embroil the United States into a major war. So it's, you know, it's like, it's so... On the one hand, I guess we should be grateful that we're like starting to get to this point. On the other hand, can't help but be furious for being castigated for over two straight years, for saying all of these obvious things yeah. and being shouted at, denied, losing friends. I mean, losing uh, losing paid subscribers, losing so many people, like repeating Russian talking points. And now the top Ukrainian general says it, and we're all supposed to just pretend like it wasn't the case for the entire period. That's that part. I'm not sure I can ever forgive that one. Well, the part yeah. that I really can't forgive either yeah. is, you know, this peace deal that was apparently pretty close to coming yeah. together at the beginning of this conflict. Right. That could have short-circuited all of this destruction and all of the lives that were lost and the civilian casualties and the brutality and all of this horror. And there's no doubt in my mind that whatever deal could could possibly be had, and that's you know assuming Russia's even interested in making a deal right now when they're doing decently well on the battlefield and they know they've got the numbers on their side where Ukraine doesn't. But whatever deal could theoretically be made now, there's no doubt it's gonna be worse than what could have been had and mm -hmm. what was more or less in hand at the beginning of this conflict when there were diplomatic negotiations going on in Turkey that we were covering at the time and that we have now since come to learn and confirmed in multiple ways by multiple sources that the U.S. decided we did not want that deal and we are the ones that caused this war to go on now for years at this point. That I can never get over. But you're right, Sagar. The way that it now just turns on a dime. It's crazy. Listen, we're not military geniuses yes, here. that's right. Right? But it didn't take a military genius to see the way that this was likely to unfold. 
And so, you know, all of the justification all the way of like, oh, we can't even talk about giving up land. Like, that's just what you're just going to appease Putin. And don't you know that he's exactly like Hitler? And so, oh, now it's okay to appease mm-hmm. Hitler? Yes. For some reason, what's changed? I thought he was literally Hitler, right? Now it's totally different. You can give him land and it's fine. And he's not going to take over all of Europe like you were trying to convince people was going to happen. What changed here, guys? So it's, it is such an example of the way that they gaslight, the way that they lie, the way that they crush any sort of dissent. I mean, we privately had lawmakers talking to us about how sensitive this was and how they could not possibly stray from the script even a little bit without getting completely castigated and completely smeared, et cetera. So, um, yeah, it's, you know, it is no surprise that we ended up in this place. And it is an extraordinary tragedy that our policymakers led by President Biden brought us to this place and enabled all of this loss of, you know, innocent life. Yeah, and you know what the great irony is? Ukraine is probably going to come out of this even worse because now if you're Russia, you see the mil- you see the military situation in Israel that's captured the rest of the globe. Yeah. You see American political support on the fence, trade-offs and all of that becoming uh, you know, um, trade-offs becoming real. Your entire economy has been converted now to a war economy. Your political support doesn't seem to have taken much of a hit. Maybe you shouldn't negotiate. Maybe you should just keep pouring men into the, you know, into the abyss and you can gain maybe 10% more of Ukraine, 5% more of that. And then maybe you negotiate. It's very possible Ukraine will end up with less land and with even more dead after this, or they could fold entirely. That's very much also on the table. So they would have been better off in those opening days with a lot less spent on our part and a lot less dead on both sides than they could be at the end of this conflict, which again was something which was very obvious um, from the very beginning. Last piece, let's put this please up on the screen just to show you is in terms of the knives out inside Ukraine, the office of President Zelensky, as he did in that interview, went after their own top military commander for publicly publicly declaring the war as a stalemate and suggesting that his comments would actually help the Russian invasion. So there is open warfare at the highest ranks of the Ukrainian uh, political system. You've got the top military commander saying it's a stalemate. You've got Zelensky's own advisors admitting to massive corruption. You've got his former aides saying that he's a dictator who doesn't listen. I mean, all of this are the signs of a crumbling political support there at the top. So that's the other issue where in terms of the chaos, there ain't no elections right now in Ukraine. Nope. <laughs> nobody knows what the hell is going to happen there. You could have a full-blown military coup tomorrow and it you know nobody would bat an eye in terms of what that would look like. And the you know, civilian populace too, they're all also caught up in this. So we'll look, who knows uh, what could happen? It's But the I think you, it's not possible to deny this. The situation there will be worse than what would have been in a peace deal yeah. in the beginning. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we should, you know, you were talking previously about how people want to compare their comments from the early days of the Israel situation to now. We should demand the same thing yeah. in Ukraine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we should demand it. Yeah. Well, here's here's uh, the last thing I'll say on this since uh, the U.S. being humiliated seems to be uh, the, theme the theme for the show today. We threw, the we, we demanded that the entire world sacrifice for this conflict. Mm-hmm. We threw the entire economic sanctions playbook that we had at Russia with uh, very middling results in terms of what we were able to inflict there. Not that I even think that those sanctions work out in very rare circumstances do they ever work out to begin with. And 
we basically threw all of NATO, I mean, we're acting like this is a Ukraine versus Russia situation, but I mean, the way that we in the full force of NATO were really behind them, we're losing to this like mm-hmm. third rate declining former superpower. Like once again, and we again pretended this whole time of, oh, we, you know, this is all up to Ukraine and we're, we're just backing them. We don't really have anything to do with it, et cetera, et cetera. And it's also becoming very clear that now the minute that we're ready to move on and, you know, it's the aid is a little bit trickier to obtain here in Washington. It also shows you how much control we had in the conflict from the beginning. But, you know, a, a, just a tragic, totally avoidable, um, devastating situation that has been enabled by, you know, almost such a large bipartisan majority and every Democrat here in D.C., every elected Democrat here in D.C. Very true. Uh, Yeah, every elected Democrat, you're right, uh, in terms of their support for this war. Okay, let's go on to the next part here. This is a story I feel very, very passionate about, but actually reveals so much about the modern U.S. economy, about credit card debt, about what the incentives are for major financial institutions. Let's go and put this up there on the screen. So the budgeting app, Mint, which I personally have been using since 2010, wow. is now shutting down and pushing its users towards credit karma. So let me explain a little bit. Mint is obviously one of the first personal finance budgeting apps. It was a revolution at the time. It was one of the premier parts of having the smartphone right around the same time as Uber. It had people have real-time access to their exact financial picture in terms of their assets, their liabilities, what the worth was, the updating transactions. You could set goals. You could see how far you were going. It was one of the best things that actually happened for a lot of people in terms of getting control of their financial picture. And it has now, and is currently being used by millions of Americans. We don't know exactly the uh, total number. But now, in Mint was bought in 2009 by Intuit. If you don't know what Intuit is, it's TurboTax, QuickBooks, uh, you know, uh, who else? They have Credit Karma. They have all these different um, companies that are under their umbrella. And just like TurboTax, what they have learned by shutting down Mint and by bolstering their Credit Karma business is that the best way to make money is not helping people be on a budget or even selling their personal financial data it's to put you even to even more debt. And that is why it's so pernicious here, Crystal. They are moving people from Mint to Credit Karma. Credit Karma will not provide you the same budgeting features, like being able to set goals and save towards different things and look at your categories. Mm. It will only give you your overall net worth picture or whatever. Now, put this up there, please, because when you dig a little bit deeper into how they make any money, it all makes sense. Credit Karma has a revenue of $1.6 billion whenever you dig into into it and its finances. That's actually down 9% over the year. Do you wanna know where that 1.6 billion came from? It's from looking at your credit score and from those pictures and then ruthlessly pushing you to sign up for credit uh, for new credit cards and for personal loans and sending stuff to your house being like hey you've pre-qualified for this ridiculous mm. personal loan just fill out this thing oh turns out you know the interest rates like 98% or something else ridiculous and it, that's how they make their money by putting you even to even more debt so the net effect of this for intuit is they are killing one of the first genuinely innovative and best budgeting tools in the United States 
and instead switching you over to a system to sell you more personal loans, credit card, credit, put you into more credit card debt. Yeah. It, 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 that, it's mind boggling, but it, it does just show you that's how they make money. They don't make money when you're doing well. People who are on a budget are gonna be less likely to get into uh, into debt. So what do we do? We put we take away their ability to budget and you put them into even more debt. It's diabolical, like whenever you see how it is, but it's just so naked. It's one of the most naked things I've ever seen because so many millions of people rely on this app. Like I said, including me, I've been using it since I was in college. I found it so helpful. And so when I saw the news that it was shutting down, I was like, I can't believe this, especially when I saw that they're just pushing people more to Credit Karma, which I remember signing up for Credit Karma in like 2010. Yeah, just to get a real-time picture of your credit score. That's not what they do now. Now they're just trying to, everybody's just trying to sell you a loan. It's like, can anybody just help you keep track of how much money you are spending? No, they don't want you to do that. That, That's the gross part uh, of this decision. Because, I mean, debt is really how they sort of keep people in line. They even say, uh, I haven't used any of these services, Mm. so I wasn't really familiar with them. But on Credit Karma's website, the way they describe is they say, Intuit's Credit Karma uses your credit profile to show you curated recommendations. That's what I'm saying. What does that mean? That means we're going to try to, you know, we're going to use your credit score and give you some tips on how to improve it so that we can send you even more loans. So we can try to get you in even more debt and be able to, you know, make sure we can turn a profit off of that. So... Yeah, it makes, makes all the sense in the world. This is also the company, as you mentioned, Intuit. They're the ones that do TurboTax, yep. which has been caught. We've done coverage of this before. I mean, the way that they, they you know, violated government regulations about how they were supposed to go about doing this. It's just they've completely scammed so many consumers to the point that now actually some of this money that's being fought over, you know how Republicans want to mm-hmm. use $14 billion to take that away from the IRS to give to Israel in spite of the fact that that actually would increase the debt more because the more money you get for IRS agents, you actually would return on investments for wealthy tax value, et cetera. Anyway, putting that aside, some of that money was supposed to be going towards developing a free tax filing system, something that Intuit is, of course, wildly against and yeah, to spend all kinds hard. of money on lobbyists to try to guarantee that this never comes to pass. So they are wrongdoers in so many senses of the word. But you're right. This is just completely, completely na- naked. And, you know, to go kind of bigger picture, like debt is has been weaponized throughout history to mm-hmm. force sort of like compliance on people. I'll give you a couple of examples. One example is um, back when we were talking about student loan debt relief. You actually had uh, military, some people in the military coming out and saying, you can't do this because we're going to lose one of our biggest recruitment tools. If people don't have student student loan debt anymore, how are we going to get anybody to join the military? So you can see the way that it, you know, compels a certain direction of a life there. Right now, you have reportedly Israel using Egypt's debt um, with the World Bank to say, hey, if you take in all these hundreds of thousands of refugees from Gaza, Maybe you get some of your debt forgiven. Mm-hmm. Um, that is not even the first time that we have used Egypt's debt to try to force their compliance and their acquiescence to our foreign policy, which we did, I think, in the initial uh, Gulf War back in the 90s yes, as well. True. So in any case, debt on an individual level, on a state level, a company level, whatever, is um, very powerful and very often weaponized. And this is very clearly nefarious. Yeah, the book recommendation I read it years ago, it's called uh, Debt. I just looked up the title, uh, The First 5,000 Years by a guy named David Graeber. It's kind of a modern, t- it's a different take on the way the evolution of money and finance, how it actually wasn't you know, for commerce, it was actually debt-related purposes. And that was, uh, 
include some of the first writings of Sumerian texts. People keep asking me, they're like, what should I use? By the way, I don't know. Um, so I've compiled a list. There are four, appears, uh, recommendations that have been given to me. One is the Every Dollar uh, app. That one's Dave Ramsey's. Mm. One is You Need a Budget. I think it's called YNAB. Uh, one is like Monarch Money. And then the other one was Rocket Money. So those are the four that were recommended. But, you know, the issue with basically all of them have pluses and minuses. Some are premium products, as in you have to pay for it. That was one of the things about Mint is it was free. I mean, nothing is technically free. But some of them, you know, to unlock, quote, unquote, premium features or whatever, you have to pay and annual subscription fee. Some of them uh, are connected to other multi-billion dollar conglomerates and are basically making money the exact same way. It just happens to also let you do budgeting. But that's part of the issue. You know, in, in every one of these cases, there's a plus and a minus. Um, and for everyone being like, just use an Excel spreadsheet, they don't real time update. Okay, that's it's a the pain issue. in the ass. Yeah, it's a pain. Yeah, you, you want to make ain't happening. <laughs> Look, it's it, as easy as it is to do Apple Pay and to pay for stuff to go into debt. It should be that easy to make sure you're not going into debt. That's what I think we all should be looking for. So I know a lot of people out there are struggling, um, especially you know with this Mint thing, because it was an integral part of my life for a lot of people um, just in their day-to-day. -day. So to get it ripped away and just look at you and to just look so starkly into why exactly mm -hmm. this is happening is just, whew, it hurts. It hurts. Are evil. They are. You can work from the road while turning your vehicle into a powerful high-speed data Wi-Fi hotspot with AT&T in-car Wi-Fi on a network that covers more roads than any other carrier. Connect up to 10 devices and stream conference calls. Finish up that presentation or answer last-minute emails. Go to att.com slash in-car Wi-Fi to see if you're eligible for a free trial today. Based on independent third-party data, always pay careful attention to the road and don't drive distracted. Wi-Fi hotspot intended for passenger use only when vehicle is in operation. Compatible device and vehicle required. Had enough of those supplements that leave you feeling nothing? Symbiotica is your solution to great-tasting all-natural supplements that actually work. Crafted with premium plant-based ingredients, their products have no seed oils, fillers, or artificial nonsense. It's just pure goodness in every pouch. Try them out and actually feel the difference today. Visit Symbiotica.com and use code IHEART for 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Again, that's 15% off plus free shipping on your subscription order. Go to Symbiotica.com. That's C-Y-M-B-I-O-T-I-K-A.com. Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right rug flooring. We also want to talk a little bit about there's some really big elections this week. There are entire state legislatures that are up. There are governor's mansions at stake. There are a lot of interesting ballot initiatives. And um, we wanted to focus in today in particular on my home state of Virginia, where uh, the governor is not on the ballot. So mm -hmm. that race is not happening. But obviously, we have Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin right now, who really is the face of the Republican Party in Virginia, who had that um, against the odds victory over Terry McAuliffe just a couple of years ago. And let's put this up on the screen. So the House and the Senate are uh, up for grabs here. 
Right now, the Republicans have a narrow advantage in what's called the House of Delegates in Virginia, and Democrats have a narrow advantage in the state Senate. And what it looks like is probably um, Democrats have a decent path to holding on to the state Senate. Republicans have a decent path to holding on to the House of Delegates. And that state Senate is really critical in particular because they've been sort of like a bulwark against, you know, whatever Glenn Youngkin wanted to do. And so they have stopped a lot of the legislation that he's been pushing forward. But the other piece of this saga that is really significant is Youngkin and the Republicans have decided to place a big bet on actually leaning into abortion messaging at a time when this issue has obviously been basically a complete disaster for Republicans. Um, they pushed unsuccessfully earlier this year for a ban on abortions after 15 weeks of pregnancy with exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the mother. Measure was blocked, as I said, by the Democratic majority in the state Senate. But they have actually put money behind talking about this 15-week um, abortion ban. They believe this is an appealing sort of middle-of-the-road approach. And so rather than just trying not to talk about the issue whatsoever, they're actually leaning into it, which is part of what makes this election so interesting. That and the fact that Virginia is oftentimes, because of these weird off-year elections that we have, um, is oftentimes kind of a bellwether for what's coming down in terms of the presidential politics and the national politics as well. Yeah, exactly. That's why we need to watch it really closely. I'm really curious, and I don't know what the hell Glenn is doing, because why would you make the election all about abortion the single most animating thing like for liberals? Idea. Yeah, and also, <laughs> we are in Virginia, dude. This is the full of the, like the, the Karens of Karens in Northern Virginia. These people crawl over broken glass to vote for abortion. It's like, what are you doing? I, I, I truly do not understand it. I did send you, though, uh, one of these letters uh, that I got in the mail. I've, I've polled some of my friends. They also got it. Um, it's We're calling it Glenn Bucks, where I'll read you a direct quote. Whenever, If you filed for an income tax return in Virginia, here's what you get. You are receiving this rebate because Governor Glenn Youngkin recently signed a bill passed by the 2023 Virginia Assembly giving taxpayers who filed tax year 2022 returns and have a tax liability a rebate of up to $200 for an individual, up to $400 for a married couple filing jointly. They send that directly to your house with a check for mm. 200 bucks uh, beneath it. So uh, it's obviously a bribe, you know, in order to vote for the Republicans. I'm not, you know, I'm not actually against it. I, it would be a better thing. Uh, from my investigation on um, where these Glenn Bucks came from, it appears that some of it was COVID money that was appropriated to the states. Yeah. And they had extra. So yeah. what they decided to do is like, hey, let's just cut a check to everybody mm -hmm. who's in the entire state. So congratulations to everybody um, who is a Virginia resident. Maybe that will have some effect. But yeah. I think that it was a colossal mistake to bet ever to bet the house on abortion restrictions again in Virginia in an off-year elections. I mean, like many, I think uh, Matt Iglesias has said this. He's like, many upper middle class Democrats have like an elect, like voting fetish. Like whenever it comes to special elections, they're like, there's nothing they love more than to vote. It's really like norm, much more normal people who vote in presidential elections. Off-year already, you really have to be like, be highly activated. And then these specials, like, or not special, these off-year, off-year mm -hmm. ones, like in Virginia, the least amount of people often vote in those things. So anyway, uh, this will be a bellwether, at least in that regard, yeah. for how animated people are.
whenever it comes to voting. There's another piece that's interesting about this, which is they are also trying to reverse the Trump-era decline in Republicans voting early and by uh, mail. Yeah, right. So they've made a real concerted effort here. Um, this is, again, reading from the APE. They said they're hoping for a boost for major investment in an initiative aiming to overcome GOP skepticism about early and mail voting and get ballots banked before Election Day. Um, an analysis by the nonpartisan Virginia Public Access Project found that six days out from the election, the share of early votes cast by likely Republican voters, because Virginia doesn't have registration by party, has increased more than two points from last year, while the GOP's share of mail votes is up by almost four percentage points. So it does appear like they were able to, you know, grab back some of the early vote. And this matters a lot just in terms of organizing. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can imagine, like, if you've got your certain universe of voters that you're trying to turn out, if you've got this group that you can check off, like they already went and voted, you don't have to worry about them anymore, then you're able to focus on bringing out those people that are more difficult and get them to the polls and call them and knock on their door, send them a flyer, whatever your strategy there is. So this was a tremendous advantage for Democrats in 2020 in particular when Trump was, you know, all about like, don't vote early, don't vote by mail, it's all rigged, et cetera, et cetera. That may have single-handedly cost him the election. He has since even backtracked, yeah, sort right. of half-heartedly. Yeah. yeah, sort of half-heartedly, but realized that this was really a, a, fail, a ta major fa tactical failure. So Youngkin has uh, has tried to reverse this. But yeah, it's going to be, it'll be a very interesting one. And then also, maybe Youngkin, and the reason we say that he wants to focus on abortion is because his aligned pack Mm. made a big ad buy on abortion and has been apparently them and these national uh, anti-abortion groups mm -hmm. have been pushing candidates to really talk about it and really include it in their messaging. So we know this has been a big push for him. But then the other question is like, how much does that matter versus the national climate? Yeah, and, that's a great point. You know, right. you so you've had a, a few things. I mean, for one thing, as we just covered with the polls, like it's not going well for Joe Biden. The Democrats doesn't look that great. On the other hand, you also just had Republicans with this whole messy situation with the Speaker of the House that also didn't look great in terms of governance. So that's why these things are interesting from a national perspective, because at this point, so much of politics is national versus local. Whatever little strategy Glenn Youngkin and the Republicans and the Democrats have in terms of the state of Virginia may be completely subsumed by just whatever the national mood is. Yeah, I, and as we've always talked about, Virginia is such a national, in, in many ways gets affected in a lot by these national elections because half the people who live in the North work for the federal government <laughs> or they work for the federal government and are way more tapped in than the average person. I mean, these people are like constantly reading the news, the most impacted, also love to vote, you know, as I said. So I put that together. I'm looking at this and I'm like, I don't know what the hell you were doing going yeah. all in on abortion. I think the Glenn Bucks was a better idea. I mean, even if we think about how did Glenn Youngkin get elected? He convinced these Northern Virginia Karens to vote for him because of the school closures. That was a huge yeah. part of it and because of the economy and how it was awful. So what do you do? You should do that again. You should keep talking about the, you know, the, uh, the economic cycle, lean into I cut you guys a $200 check. We're going to unleash, you know, more jobs or whatever in Virginia. Talking about social issues in a state that's like Biden plus eight or something like that just seems like the dumbest possible <laughs> thing. But Not to mention some of the key uh, seats here, both of the House of Delegates and the State Senate are in like Loudoun County. Right. They're in like the exurbs, exactly the type of voters 
that would, you know, maybe swayed by the school closure argument, yeah. but maybe swayed in the total opposite direction by like, hey, let's do more abortion restrictions. What do you think, guys? So probably, in my personal opinion, probably not the smartest strategy yeah. from Mr. Youngkin. Um, I just want to throw out there a couple of the other big elections that are happening tomorrow. We're going to cover some more of these tomorrow with, uh, I believe we have J. Miles Coleman, mm -hmm. who's coming in to give us a full breakdown. You do have a few governor's races. Um, the most interesting to me are Kentucky where you've got a Democrat, Andy Bashir, who's actually really quite popular in the state, but it's still Kentucky. So that one, and he's up against a Republican named uh, Daniel Cameron, who's the current AG. So that one will be really interesting. And then it's almost the flip. You have a very unpopular Republican in, and uh, Ryan Grimm's doppelganger, Tate mm -hmm. Reeves, down in Mississippi, who was caught up in the whole Brett Favre scandal, you guys will remember, facing a relative of Elvis Presley. Wow. Um, now, I think Reeves is very likely to win. Most of the polling indicates it is, but there was an internal poll that showed it more or less tied, so that one is kind of interesting. There's um, an abortion initiative on the ballot in Ohio that would enshrine the right to uh, the right to abortion in the state constitution. That one is very interesting in Ohio. We had some early indications we covered previously that seemed like the pro-choice position was sort of overwhelmingly winning there. There's one in Maine that I'm also really interested in where they want to change their utilities to be owned by the public. Hmm. Um, so some little burgeoning potential socialism there in Maine that uh, has caught my eye as well. So there's there's a lot. There's other legislatures up on the ballot as well. So there's a, a lot to, to dig into. So we'll get into some more of that with uh, Jay Miles tomorrow. Cool. Yeah, I'm excited to do that, especially the Kentucky one. I, I think that guy's going to run for president someday. But sure. Bashir. He probably should. I mean, it's like him and Josh Shapiro. I'm looking at those two guys. I'm like, both of these guys are angling for the presidency. Andy Bashir. Yeah. I, I know him a little bit personally because I used to live in uh -huh. Kentucky. Very nice man. Um, char charisma? Not there. He's popular. <laughs> there. He's popular from but a red he's, state. Like, he's, um, yeah, I mean, he's like been very smart in terms of how he's conducted himself. And he's really leaned into, and this might surprise people, but now like being pro-labor is extremely popular. Mm -hmm. It's always been popular in Kentucky, actually, right. which is quite a populist yeah. state. Um, Cole, they have the Kentucky uh, truck plant, like one of the big Ford truck assembly plants is in Kentucky. They just won some of those new big battery plants. So there's big economic initiatives that Andy's been uh, taking credit for. But again, it's still Kentucky. And this is a state that has moved you know, very far to the right, Daniel Cameron, I think, has a real shot at it. Polls are uh, sort of like notoriously really wrong in the state of Kentucky. Mm -hmm. So even though all the polls have showed Andy Bashir with a significant, at times double digit, lead over Daniel Cameron, you just never know there until election day. And the last thing I'll say on, on this one, and then we can, we can wrap up here, but um, Kentucky was a real bellwether in terms of the election of Trump. And you had a uh, Democrat just before Trump was elected in 2015. Um, you had a, a Democrat who, again, was up in the polls consistently, consistently, consistently. Everybody thought he basically had it in the bag. You might think that's strange, but Kentucky has voted for Democrats at the state level like for a long time. And the Republican, this kind of brash businessman named Matt Bevin, came out of nowhere to win that election. And I'm talking the polls were showing consistent double-digit leads for the Democrat. And that really sort of was a canary in the coal mine mm. for Trump. So anyway, right. none of this is a guarantee of what the future may hold, but it's always better to hear and see what voters are actually feeling and how they're actually voting. I put a lot more stock in that than what the polls are saying, especially at this point. Totally. So that's I why totally we're watching it really closely. It'll be fun. I'm excited to see it. All right. Thank you guys so much for watching. We really appreciate it. Uh, we'll have a great show for everybody tomorrow, and we will see you all then.
Right here, right now. Find your beautiful new floor at Right Rug Flooring. Choose from thousands of in-stock styles ready for next day installation and all backed by the right price guarantee. Visit rightrug.com. That's R-I-T-E-R-U-G.com today to schedule a free in-home estimate or to find a location near you. 24-month financing is available with approved credit. For 90 years, we've been right here, right now. Right Rug Flooring. If a new house is on your wish list in the next five years, grow your savings faster and experience your dreams with an Ohio Homebuyer Plus account from Kemba Financial Credit Union, a savings account specifically designed to save for a new home where you can earn 7% APY, a $500 matching bonus, and a $1,500 mortgage closing cost credit. Learn more at Kemba.org. Offer expires March 31st, 2025. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. NMLS 292230. Equal housing lender. Federally insured by NCUA. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com.